0: One, two, three, testing. One, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode The Miracle Making of President Nelson. One of the core tenets of Mormonism is that God's intimate dealings with the children of men are not restricted only to Old Testament times or even to New Testament times, but that they continue unabated today, and specifically. They continue within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. God continues to directly reveal his will, not only to the leadership of the Church, but also to the individual members. Contrary to the words of Paul Simon, God only knows, God makes his plan, the information is available to the mortal man. And not only does God continue to reveal his will from heaven, not only in the then and there, but in the here and now, Other assorted and various miracles also continue to manifest themselves by God's power within the LDS Church. Because of this cornerstone of Mormonism that miracles continue to occur today, there is a tendency among members of the Church and even among its leadership to take ordinary pedestrian, everyday kinds of events and cloak them with a patina of the miraculous. I remember one example of this happened not long after I joined the church back in 1978. At that point, I didn't know much about the LDS church. All I knew was that it was 16, it was beautiful, and it was mine. And what made it so beautiful was that it was true. Much of what I learned about the church at that early age came from my best friend, Bruce, whom I've talked about in prior podcasts. He was the person who introduced me to the gospel and baptized me in June of 1978. One day, not long after that, we were talking about the succession to the presidency. In other words, how the new president to the LDS church is chosen after a president passes away. I remember Bruce telling me in odd tones that's odd, A-W-E-D, not O-D-D, in odd tones, how when the president of the church passes away, the other 14 apostles get together in a room in the Salt Lake Temple and they all pray about who should be the next president of the church. And then after they have prayed, miracle of miracles, each and every one of those 14 apostles receives the exact same revelation that Apostle X, should become the next president of the church, and that is in fact the next apostle who does become the president of the LDS church. Well, this was faith-promoting. This was amazing. This was miraculous. I loved it. It was only several years later, after my mission, when I was reading a pamphlet written by Joseph Fielding Smith titled The Succession to the Presidency, that I found out that the facts were somewhat different, and the facts were decidedly less miraculous. That, in fact, what really occurs is that when the president of the church passes away, it is already known and understood by all the other apostles who will be the next president. The next president of the church will be who it always has been. It is the longest continuously serving apostle. So much so is this the case that the president of the LDS church at any given time is defined as the longest continuously serving apostle in the church. And that is how we knew when President Monson died that the next president of the church was not up for grabs. It was going to be Russell M. Nelson. And it would be Russell M. Nelson because after Thomas S. Monson, he was the longest continuously serving apostle in the LDS church. Case closed, end of story, no miracle about it. So we can see how the simple following of long-established procedure in choosing the president of the church can become imbued with a nimbus of the miraculous. But not only is this penchant for making miracles out of nothing at all prevalent among the membership of the church, it is also something that we can see among the leadership of the church. In tonight's episode, we're going to look at not one, but three examples of how the current president of the church, Russell M. Nelson, appears to take ordinary events and add miraculous elements to them in order to make them extraordinary. And that is why tonight's episode is titled, The Miracle-Making of President Nelson. I like to call these three examples. Number one, the revelation that wasn't number two, the lady in the hat and number three, the incident at Mozambique. But before we get to those examples, I want to thank everybody who has donated to the radio free Mormon podcast. Your donations keep this podcast going. And I want to encourage everybody who has not yet made a donation to go to radiofreemormon.org right now and make a contribution today. $10 $10 a month, $25 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contribution will keep this podcast going into the future. And keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Now, on to example number one, the revelation that wasn't. Example number one has to do with something we talked about not that long ago in episode 63 titled President Nelson jumps the shark. In that episode, we looked at the November 2015 exclusionary policy related to members of the church in gay marriages and their children, as well as the reversal of that policy in April of 2019, approximately three and one-half years later. We talked about how both of them were claimed by Russell M. Nelson to be revelation, both the institution of the policy as well as the reversal, of the policy. Both of those came from the same all-knowing deity, according to President Nelson. According to D. Todd Christofferson, however, he had never heard about this policy until it was presented to all of the apostles for an up or down vote without debate on November third, two 2015. This is the day that the policy was enacted and only two days before it was leaked to the public on November fifth, two 2015. Todd Christopherson related this to his brother, who then related it to noted LDS historian and scholar Gregory Prince. We learned about this in an interview he had with the Salt Lake Tribune in April of 2019. Play the tape. Uh, and that was the
1: go-ahead. But what Tom Christopherson said that evening, so this now is Thursday evening, he said he had spoken to his brother Todd earlier and that Todd had told him that Tuesday morning was the first that he had known about this
0: policy, and that it was presented to the 12 as an up-or-down vote without debate. So you can see here how, according to D. Todd Christofferson, the enactment of this policy was nothing miraculous. While there may be many words that could be used to describe the enactment of this policy, miraculous is certainly not one of them. Now compare this account by D. Todd Christofferson with the story told by Russell M. Nelson in January of 2016 about the exact same event, the enactment of this policy. And notice how Russell M. Nelson takes every opportunity to embellish the story in order to add supernatural elements to it to make it constitute a miracle. Play the tape.
1: The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles counseled together and share all the Lord has directed us to understand and to feel individually and collectively. And then we watch the Lord move upon the president of the church to proclaim the Lord's will. This prophetic process was followed in 2012 with the change in minimum age for missionaries. And again with... The recent additions to the church's handbook, consequent to the
0: legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries. But strangely, Apostle D. Todd Christofferson knows nothing about these meetings in the temple. The President Nelson says the First Presidency and all the apostles convened. It reminds me of a children's story I used to read to my daughter when she was a little girl. A moose and a goose together have juice, but not the hippopotamus. But here it should be, a moose and a goose together meet at the temple, but not D. Todd Christofferson.
1: Filled with compassion for all, and especially for the children, we wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter. Ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of His hope for eternal life for each of His children. We considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise.
0: This part of the story seems contradicted by the facts as well, because you will recall that within two weeks after this new policy was leaked, the First Presidency was put to the trouble of correcting it in two major aspects, which I have gone over in prior podcasts. The point being, it is pretty darn clear that they did not go over every possible permutation, in these many, many meetings with all the apostles present, at which D. Todd Christofferson, an apostle at a minimum, was apparently not present.
1: We met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer and sought further direction and inspiration. And then when the Lord inspired his prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. It was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson.
0: So this is example number one of an instance where Russell M. Nelson seems willing to take a very ordinary kind of event, such as an up or down vote, by the apostles on enacting this policy without debate and making a miracle of it. If this were the only example, it would be worth commenting on. But the examples do not stop there because it appears that President Nelson may have a track record of this sort of thing. Example number two has to do with a story. It's a missionary story involving President Nelson many years ago when he gave a Book of Mormon to a colleague of his and the colleague ended up reading it And the colleague and his wife ended up joining the church. Now that is a nice story. It's a good story. There's nothing wrong with that story from an LDS point of view, and it is worth recounting on its own terms. But it appears that that was not good enough for President Nelson, who ended up embellishing this story as well in order to add miraculous elements to it to make it more than it really was. On April 9th, 2019, the Truth and Transparency Foundation, formerly known as Mormon Leaks, published an article titled, False Story Removed from Newest Book on the Life of Mormon President Russell M. Nelson. Here's what that article states. A book exploring the life and teachings of Russell M. Nelson, current president of the Mormon Church, underwent a last-minute edit before its public release on April 8th. 2019. The publisher, Deseret Book, of course, became aware that the book contained a faith-promoting story with material inaccuracies. What we're going to see is that this faith-promoting story's material inaccuracies, all had to do with the miraculous elements of the story going on. The story was subsequently removed and the book reprinted in time for its scheduled release. Excerpts from the book titled, Insights from a Prophet's Life, President Russell M. Nelson, authored by Sherry Dew, were published in an article found in the March and April 2019 issue of LDS Living Magazine. One excerpt, titled, You Didn't Read It, Did You? tells the story of a young Nelson who was serving as a surgeon in Korea during the Korean War. So what's going on here is that there's this big book authored by Sherry Dew about President Russell M. Nelson. She's best friends with his wife. They hang out together all the time and they have for years. Sherry Dew frequently accompanies Wendy and Russell Nelson on their tours throughout the world. She is in a place where she has direct access, not only to President Nelson, but also to his wife, Wendy. She has written a book about Russell and Nelson. It's scheduled for release in April 2019. And just prior to its release, an excerpt from that book is published online in the LDS Living magazine. And as it turns out, it was a very fortunate thing that they published this particular excerpt online. It was a promo for the book. But the problem was, that the story told in the promo article was wrong. Going on, one excerpt titled, You Didn't Read It, Did You?, tells the story of a young Nelson who was serving as a surgeon in Korea during the Korean War. While serving, he discussed the Book of Mormon with a nurse on staff, Beverly Ashcraft. He gave her a copy of the book, only for it to be returned a few days later by her husband, Derwin, a fellow surgeon at the base. Derwin did not express much interest in learning more about the book. According to the story, Nelson pressed and convinced the Ashcrafts to read the entire book. The couple was eventually baptized by Nelson. Derwin died a few years later and Beverly remarried. So this is back during the Korean War. This is in the first part of the 1950s. Time goes on. Apparently, sometime shortly after Nelson became an apostle in 1984, So this would have been approximately 30 years after the incident being described with the Ashcrafts. Apparently, sometime shortly after Nelson became an apostle in 1984, he spoke at a state conference in Tennessee. While at this state conference, Nelson was drawn to a woman he saw in the crowd wearing a hat. Now remember, this is a story as being related by Russell M. Nelson in this new book that's about to come out. Nelson was drawn to a woman he saw in the crowd wearing a hat while he was giving his talk from the pulpit, he called her out in the crowd and asked how long she had been a member and who baptized her. She responded that he baptized her in 1951. The woman was Beverly. See how miraculous this is already, but the miracles keep coming. The story goes on to describe how Nelson asked Beverly, How many people connected with you have come into the church since I baptized you? Astonished, She revealed a dream she had the night before, in which someone at the conference asked her that very question. Because of the dream, she came prepared with a piece of paper in her purse with the answer to the question. So apparently, she gets up sometime after she has this dream... Maybe in the morning, maybe she wakes up in the middle of the night like Russell M. Nelson does and writes it down on a pad of paper. She brings it to the conference because of this dream, and lo and behold, here's President Nelson, who apparently does not remember her. His attention is only drawn to her because of the hat she is wearing, and he asks her how many people connected with you have come into the church since I baptized you. Well, here's the piece of paper, she pulls it out of her purse, and here's the answer to that very question. There's only one problem with the story. It didn't happen. At least none of the miraculous elements of it happened. And this was picked up by the daughter and granddaughter of Derwin and Beverly. According to Leslie and Katie McKenzie, daughter and granddaughter of Derwin and Beverly. So Leslie is the daughter and Katie is the granddaughter. That is not what happened. In a phone interview with the Truth and Transparency Foundation, Leslie and Katie, the daughter and granddaughter, told the real story behind their mother and grandmother's conversion. A conversion story that has been a source of pride in their family for nearly seven decades. So, Leslie and Katie, the daughter and granddaughter respectively, of Beverly and Derwin Ashcraft, read the article in LDS Living magazine that described this miraculous event involving their mother, Beverly, who is still alive, by the way, even though Derwin has passed away. Beverly is still around. And they reached out to LDS Living in order to correct the record. Leslie and Katie say that their family have always been proud that their first exposure to Mormonism was through Nelson, so that part of the story is correct, the man who would later become president of the church. They saw him as a spiritual giant, great leader, and the man that changed the legacy of their family forever. They were aware that Nelson occasionally used the story of Derwin and Beverly as a faith-promoting example of missionary work, which, as I say, it is just standing on its own without this miraculous story at the state conference in Tennessee. The story even appeared in a 1984 Enzyme article and in Nelson's biography on LDS.org. However, in these versions, there is no mention of Korea, Beverly being a nurse, or a serendipitous encounter at a state conference in Tennessee. According to Leslie and Katie, Beverly was never a nurse. She never lived in Korea, and she didn't know Nelson until her husband introduced her to him. Derwin met Nelson when the two were working, not in Korea, but at the Walter Reed Army Military Medical Center in Washington, D.C. They were both doctors performing research, Derwin a veterinarian and Nelson a medical doctor. They became friends, and Nelson later met Beverly, who worked in the same hospital, as a transcriptionist, not a nurse. Nelson introduced them to the Mormon church and baptized them. So that's the story. Russell M. Nelson does introduce both of them to the LDS church. He does baptize both of them. But what about this miracle that occurred at the state conference in the 1980s at a stake center in Tennessee? Well, according to Leslie and Katie, there was an encounter in the 1980s at a state conference. Unfortunately, nothing miraculous happened there, but they say there was an encounter in the 1980s at a state conference. Shortly after Nelson was called to be an apostle, he traveled to Knoxville to speak at the conference. Leslie and Katie were both living with Beverly in Knoxville at the time, so they were present. They're eyewitnesses. When they heard Nelson was coming to town, they made sure to attend. So all three of them are there, the daughter, the granddaughter, as well as Beverly. They remember that Nelson was aware of who Beverly was and knew she was in attendance. So wait a second. This isn't a situation where there's a mass of people out there at state conference and President Nelson's attention happens to be drawn to a lady who's wearing a hat. He knew she was going to be there. They remember that Nelson was aware of who Beverly was and knew she was in attendance. He did call her up to the podium during his talk. And told everyone about her baptism story, apparently the correct story, and about how there are many members of the church today as a result of her conversion. However, critically, Katie and Leslie state, there was no dream the night before, there was not a prepared note in her purse, why would there be a note prepared in her purse if there was no dream the night before, there was not a prepared note in her purse, and there was no confusion on the part of Nelson as to who she was. Katie adds that her grandmother has never worn a hat to church and did not have a hat on that day. And so we can see that a rather ordinary story of President Nelson sharing the gospel with a friend and his wife and getting them baptized into the church doesn't seem to be good enough. Over time, a miracle is made out of it. And the miracle has to do with the events at the state conference in Tennessee, President Nelson does go to the state conference. Beverly is present at the state conference. President Nelson does ask her to come up and share with the audience all the people who have joined the church because of her, which, by the way, means because of him, since he's the one who baptized her in the first place. This note of vainglory is hard to escape on the part of President Nelson. But all the miraculous elements of the story were somehow made up by President Nelson and added to the narrative. This is similar to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland back in the summer of 2017 telling a miracle story to a group of newly called mission presidents at the MTC, which was thereafter published in the Deseret News. I did an episode about that story as well, and the fact that after that story was published in the Deseret News, people involved in the miracle story contacted Elder Holland to tell him that none of the miraculous elements of the story had actually happened. And Elder Holland then was put to the embarrassment of having to issue a public retraction of the story, which he actually did not do himself but had other people do for him. He's not too busy to tell the miraculous story in the first place, but he is too busy to issue the retraction of the story. So this is very similar. We have a story which is really not miraculous that then has miraculous elements added to it. It is published by LDS Living in this case, And not Deseret News, but it's published in LDS Living in advance of the book that is shortly coming out, which contains this miracle story. And fortunately, people associated with the story who know the true facts and know that there was really nothing miraculous about it, contact the church and let them know, hey, you've got it wrong. There's no miracle about this. And this is done in time for them to take it out of the book before the book hits the stands. At the Deseret bookstores. The only difference between the situation between Elder Holland and President Nelson is that in Elder Holland's case, it does not look like Elder Holland was the one who added the miraculous elements to the story. That had been done by others before him and he was simply repeating a miracle story without checking out whether it was true. In President Nelson's case, it appears to be more serious. He's not simply repeating a miracle story he's heard from somebody else. He's taking a story that actually occurred to him. This is a personal story, a story that happened in his own life. And he is the one who is adding the miraculous elements to it. Again, there was no dream the night before. There was not a prepared note in her purse. And there was no confusion on the part of Nelson as to who she was. Katie adds that her grandmother has never worn a hat to church and did not have a hat on that day. So where does the hat come from? Well, there has to be some reason for President Nelson's attention to be drawn to Beverly if she's in the audience and if he does not know that she is already going to be there, which he actually did. But now that he's changed the story, there has to be some reason for his attention to be drawn to this one woman among hundreds of people present at a state conference, and so he creates the hat out of thin air. And so the hat becomes something that is necessary to his new telling of the story, his improved telling of the story, his miraculous telling of the story. Katie was first made aware of this new version of the story in early March, 2019, in early March, when a family member sent her a screenshot of the article, the article from LDS Living. She showed it to her mother. And when she realized that it was part of an upcoming book, immediately reached out to Deseret Book and LDS Living. She sent both companies a document with annotations pointing out the incorrect information, i.e., the miraculous information. Katie was eventually contacted by a representative from Deseret Book and another from LDS Living. The representative from Deseret Book thanked her for bringing this to their attention. I mean, can you imagine how embarrassing this would be to have this story included in a book that went out to hundreds and thousands of faithful Latter-day Saints, only to find out later that it was all made up? Can you say Paul H. Dunn? The representative from Deseret Book thanked her for bringing this to their attention and that since it was so close to the release date, they would just remove the story entirely instead of trying to fix it. The representative told Katie that this would require a reprinting of at least some of the books as the final printing process had already begun. Phew, boy, talk about in the nick of time. The representative from LDS Living, so this is the second rep. The first one was a rep from Deseret Book. This is the rep from LDS Living. The representative from LDS Living told Katie that portions of the article would not appear in the online version, but did not say whether or not a retraction would be printed in in the next issue. Requests for comment from both Deseret Book and LDS Living have gone unanswered. So Ryan McKnight, who is the author of this article for the Truth and Transparency Foundation, dated April 19, 2019, reached out to LDS Living as well as Deseret Book asked for comment. Nope, no comment, thank you. When asked why she felt the need to take it upon herself to correct the record, Katie says that her main concern was the fact that people were reading this account and believing it to be accurate when it isn't. Her grandmother is still alive and she is worried about people in her ward reading the story and asking her about it, thus putting her in a position to have to lie or disparage Nelson, a man she loves and reveres. Leslie and Katie also felt that the story, as it appeared in LDS Living, unfairly painted Derwin in a bad light, making it seem like he was dismissive of his wife and the Book of Mormon that was gifted by Nelson. He is not alive to defend himself and Katie felt it her duty to defend her grandfather from a false narrative. Now that particular comment about protecting their grandfather from a false narrative does not really make any sense unless you actually read the article as it appeared in LDS Living, which I am going to do now because a screenshot was taken of this article and it is available at a link on the Truth and Transparency Foundation. The way that article starts out is this introduction. Editor's note, during the Korean War and one year shy of finishing his residency and earning his PhD, Dr. Nelson enlisted in the army and was transferred to active duty in Korea shortly after the birth of his and his first wife, Dancell's second daughter, Wendy. Whew, that's kind of a long sentence. The following story occurred when he was part of a MASH unit during that war. Okay, now we get to the excerpt from the upcoming book, the excerpt that was taken out eventually and precipitously. Young Lieutenant Nelson performed many operations in less than optimal conditions. One day, a nurse named Beverly, see, here she's a nurse, A nurse named Beverly Ashcraft approached him at the end of an operation in which she had assisted him. What makes you different from all the other surgeons I work with? Okay, so here, (laughs) oh my gosh, what makes you, okay, so here she can see that there's something special about him. He's not like other surgeons. What on earth is it that makes him so special? What makes you different from all the other surgeons I work with? She asked likely assuming that he would have a straightforward answer. Dr. Nelson thought for a moment and responded much differently than she expected. Well, I don't know that I'm different, but if I am, it's because I know the Book of Mormon is true. Not only was Beverly not expecting that answer, she was not impressed with it. It was only out of a sense of duty that she accepted Dr. Nelson's offer to borrow the one and only copy of the Book of Mormon he had at the time. Her husband, Derwin, was a fellow surgeon. And a few days later, he returned the book, tossed it to Russell, and muttered a feeble thanks. That is a totally inappropriate answer for someone who has read the Book of Mormon, Lieutenant Nelson responded. You didn't read it, did you? You see, that's why this article is titled, You Didn't Read It, Did You? It is a quote from Lieutenant Nelson to Derwin Ashcraft when Derwin Ashcraft returns the Book of Mormon with a feeble Thanks. Once again, that is a totally inappropriate answer for someone who has read the Book of Mormon, Lieutenant Nelson responded. You didn't read it, did you? I don't know about you, but hearing a story where a mashed doctor says this kind of thing to a fellow doctor is giving me a decidedly Frank Burns kind of vibe. Going on. I'm asking you and Beverly to read it, and when you have, then I want my book back. The Ashcrafts did read the book, and over a period of time, Lieutenant Nelson taught them the gospel. In 1951, he baptized them, and then he lost track of the Ashcrafts. So that is the story told by President Nelson regarding Derwin Ashcraft. And that is why Leslie and Katie, the daughter and granddaughter of Derwin Ashcraft, felt that the story, as it appeared in LDS Living, and as it was about to appear in the book, unfairly painted Derwin in a bad light, making it seem like he was dismissive. Of his wife and the Book of Mormon that was gifted by Nelson. He is not alive to defend himself, and Katie felt it her duty to defend her grandfather from a false narrative. So that part of the narrative was false as well. Leslie and Katie, they're not anti Mormons. They're not out to burn the church down. They love the church. They love President Nelson. Leslie and Katie harbor no ill will toward Nelson, nor do they think he owes them an apology. They hope that LDS Living prints a retraction and that better fact-checking is done in the future before putting stories like this in books that are meant to be read by millions of people. So that's the end of the article there at the Truth and Transparency Foundation, published April 9, 2019. You can see that once again, President Nelson takes a rather ordinary and unmiraculous occurrence, and in order to make it ready for prime time adds miracle upon miracle in order to show, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that God continues to manifest His will through miraculous means to members of the LDS Church. But you know, after actually reading the article as it was set forth in the LDS Living magazine, it strikes me that the Truth and Transparency Foundation article summarizing the story did not really do justice to all of the miraculous elements that were put forth in this story as published. Let me take a couple of minutes to read the rest of that story so you can see what I mean. While I'm reading this, remember that this is an excerpt from a book that was just about to hit the stands in April of 2019. It is a book about President Russell M. Nelson written by Sherry Dew. And it is very difficult for me to believe that this story or this entire book was going to be published without having been reviewed first by President Nelson to assure its accuracy and that he agreed with the portrayals being set forth in it. So, I think it's fair to conclude that this story does have the imprimatur of President Nelson as to its truth and accuracy. From the point where I left off, the Ashcrafts did read the book, the Book of Mormon, and over a period of time, Lieutenant Nelson taught them the gospel. In 1951, he baptized them, and then he lost track of the Ashcrafts. Fast forward 30 years to when Russell Nelson had become Elder Nelson, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles who had just been asked to take a last-minute assignment to fill in for Elder Neal A. Maxwell at a state conference in Tennessee. Elder Nelson headed for Tennessee, arriving at the airport where members greeted him with, Welcome to Tennessee, Elder Maxwell signs. Well, that's a little bit humorous. Obviously, they didn't get the word that he was going to be substituting for Elder Maxwell. They thought it would be Elder Maxwell, and they had signs saying, Welcome to Tennessee, Elder Maxwell. The story goes on. During the Sunday morning session of the conference, Elder Nelson was drawn to a woman wearing a large hat and sitting on the left-hand side of the chapel. He asked the stake president who she was, because you see in the story, he doesn't know that it's Beverly, even though... He actually did in reality know that she was there, but that's not miraculous enough. He asked the stake president who she was. The president didn't know, but managed to learn that her name was Beverly Zitting, Z-I-T-T-I-N-G. She had remarried after her husband passed away. Now she has a new last name, Beverly Zitting. When Elder Nelson went to the pulpit, he felt prompted, you see there's that miracle stuff, when Elder Nelson went to the pulpit, he felt prompted to call this woman to join him. So he doesn't know who she is. All he knows is that she's wearing a big hat. He's been told her name is Beverly Zitting, which he would not put two and two together, even if he remembered Beverly Ashcraft, because her name is now different. So he asks this woman whom he doesn't know to come up and join him at the pulpit at a state conference in front of hundreds of people. And after she gets up there to the pulpit, he asks her a question. How long have you been a member of the church? He asked her with the congregation looking on. 30 years, she responded. Who baptized you? He then asked. After a brief pause, she answered, You did, in 1951. Oh, see how astonishing this is. What is your name again? He asks her. She explained that when Elder Nelson had baptized her, her name had been Beverly Ashcraft and her husband's name, Derwin. After he died, she had remarried, and now she had a large family who were active in the church. Beverly, how many people connected with you have come into the church since I baptized you? Elder Nelson asked. You won't believe this, she told him, and frankly, he shouldn't believe it, and we shouldn't believe it, because this never happened. You won't believe this, she told him and the congregation, but two nights ago, I had a dream that Elder Maxwell would ask me that very question. So this was an inspired dream, but apparently it wasn't inspired enough to let her know that Elder Maxwell was not going to be there. Instead, it would be Elder Nelson. I had a dream that Elder Maxwell would ask me that very question. So she had come prepared, and she pulled out of her purse a paper with the names of all the people who had come into the church as a result of her baptism. The number was eighty-eight zero. So that's the story, the official approved story by President Nelson, that was set to be published in the book in April of 2019, and which was excerpted and published just a little bit early in LDS Living magazine. That story concludes with this paragraph. During subsequent years, Beverly would visit Elder Nelson in his office at church headquarters at least twice. On the last visit, she was accompanied by children and grandchildren. Hmm, who could that be? Well, at least two of them, one child and one grandchild, were the people who recognized that this story was made up. On the last visit, she was accompanied by children and grandchildren wishing to thank Elder Nelson for baptizing their mother and grandmother. By that time, the number of those who had joined the church as a result of her baptism was 300 and counting. So that's the end of the story in LDS Living Magazine. And we can see how, when we read the story, it is simply and utterly miraculous. And all these simply and utterly miraculous parts of it are pure embellishments on the part of President Nelson to an otherwise ordinary and unmiraculous event. But there is yet another example of this sort of miracle-making on the part of President Nelson. It is our third and final example tonight, and I like to call it the Incident at Mozambique. Now, the essential elements of what really happened during the Incident at Mozambique is that Elder Russell M. Nelson, along with his wife Wendy, was visiting the African nation of Mozambique. He was accompanied by a General Authority 70 and his wife, and they were visiting the mission president there and the mission president's wife. So there are three couples down there. It is May of 2009, and they are sitting down to dinner when four men come into the house and rob them and then leave very quickly. This story was first published by KSL News on May 30th of 2009 under an article titled LDS Church Apostle, His Wife, and Two Other Couples Attacked in Mozambique. This story runs as follows. Dateline, Salt Lake City. Armed assailants attacked and robbed a Latter-day Saint apostle, his wife, and two other couples in the African nation of Mozambique. Elder Russell M. Nelson and his wife Wendy were on a church assignment when the incident happened. According to church spokesman Scott Trotter, so this is the guy who should know. According to church spokesman Scott Trotter, the wife of the mission president, Blair Packard, suffered a broken arm. She and others also have cuts and bruises. So even though the wife of the mission president gets a broken arm, which is definitely unfortunate, this whole incident is unfortunate, the others escaped with minor injuries, cuts, and bruises, according to the article. An official church statement was released which stated, On Friday evening, they were having dinner together in the mission president's home when armed assailants entered the home and robbed them. We don't have complete information yet, but we understand that Sister Packard's arm was broken. In addition, she and others suffered some superficial injuries, mainly cuts and bruises. Elder and Sister Nelson will continue their assignment over the weekend, as planned. So that's the end of the official church statement quote in this article. The article goes on, the country of Mozambique is located in the southeastern part of the African continent on the Indian Ocean. Elder and Sister Nelson had traveled there for weekend meetings with church leaders there, which included Mozambique Maputo mission president Blair Packard and his wife Sister Cindy Packard, so finally we get to her name, it's Cindy Packard, so that's the mission president and his wife that they're visiting, and Elder William and Sister Shanna Parmley of the African Southeast Area Presidency. The article goes on with a little background about the problem of such robberies in Mozambique. Former missionaries to Mozambique, who we talked with Saturday, tell us that they were warned to always be cautious and told about the dangers of life in that African nation. Austin Hill served a Latter-day Saint mission in Mozambique in 2002 and 2003. He says the people are very friendly. Well, most of the people, apparently. The mission home before the current one got broken into and the church-employed guards were there all day. One of the three guards they employed had orchestrated the whole thing, Hill said. So here this former missionary to Mozambique is describing a robbery of the mission home itself. When you hear of something happening in the neighborhood, he goes on, as you're there, it's usually with a machete. So usually machetes are used by robbers in Mozambique. We don't yet know what or how much was taken, but authorities in Maputo are investigating this crime. So though this sounds like a traumatic incident being reported by the church, as it happened to Elder Russell M. Nelson and the others present, it does not sound like there was anything miraculous about it. Perhaps it's miraculous in a general kind of euphemistic sense that nobody was hurt any worse than Sister Cindy Packard who had her arm broken. That's a good thing, but not necessarily miraculous in any way. What we're going to find out is the only reason it's not miraculous is because it hasn't germinated long enough in Russell M. Nelson's mind and perhaps Wendy Nelson's mind in order to add miraculous elements to it, which will happen before very long as we shall see. Because by November of 2009, just six months later, additional details are being added to the story. Details not mentioned before and details of a decidedly miraculous nature. Interestingly, this is not President Russell M. Nelson who first voices these miracles. Rather, it is his wife, Wendy Nelson. And she described these miraculous elements at an event called Time Out for Women in Salt Lake City. On November 15, 2009, the Deseret Morning News wrote an article about a talk Sister Wendy Nelson gave at this event, and the article is entitled, Apostles' Wife Felt Comfort Despite Attack. Let's read this article together, shall we? The wife of Elder Russell M. Nelson said she felt a comforting peace that helped her remain calm during an attack by armed robbers last spring. Sister Wendy Watson Nelson described the experience Friday during a speech to 3,300 women at the Time Out for Women event in Salt Lake City. The robbery occurred in May at an LDS mission home in Mozambique. So we know we're talking about the same incident. Here's what Sister Nelson says. The four armed robbers had one intention, to harm my husband and to take me hostage. Well, that's interesting One would normally think that the intention of robbers coming into a house would be to rob people and then take as much stuff as they could and get away as quickly as they can. But that's not what Sister Nelson says now. These four armed robbers had only one intention, and their one intention was not to rob people. Instead, it was to harm my husband and to take me hostage. That's a quote from Sister Nelson in November of 2009. This article goes on. Sister Nelson said she and her husband, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, were on a church assignment in the African country. She described finishing taco salads. So now we're getting some details. She described finishing some taco salads with Mozambique Maputo mission president Blair Packard and his wife and two other couples when a man suddenly walked into the mission home. So only one man walks into the mission home at first. Sister Nelson says, I expected the president to greet him like a friend. And here she apparently is talking about the mission president. I expected the president to greet him like a friend, but he stood by the door. And instead, the mission president's wife, who I call a hero, said, this is a robbery. So a strange man walks into the room, stands by the door, and the mission president's wife says, this is a robbery. After she informed her guests of the situation, Cindy Packard, the mission president's wife, ran outside to shout, robber robber in Portuguese. It's unclear from this story when it is exactly that she gets her arm broken, but that appears to be something that really did happen in as much as it was part of the initial reports. This article goes on. She was the only one in the group who could speak the language well. So Cindy Packard, the mission president's wife, is the only one in the group who can speak the language well. Apparently, the mission president had not been brushing up on his Portuguese. And Portuguese is the language of Mozambique, which a quick Google search just showed me. Going on. And her efforts summoned help and brought the hideous situation to a close. Cindy Packard, however, suffered a broken arm during the attack. Others in the group suffered some superficial injuries, mainly cuts and bruises. Now we've heard that part before. Sister Nelson said the attempted robbery and abduction. Now it's an attempted abduction as well. Of who? Why? None other than Wendy Nelson. The attempted robbery and abduction was a sobering experience, she said, that confirms that, quote, life is a spook alley, unquote. Note to Wendy, this might be an unfortunate turn of phrase when relating an incident that happened in Mozambique. Just saying. But she said she takes comfort in the scripture that advises the righteous to fear not what man can do. Her account of the attack helped illustrate several points. She said the first of the four armed men didn't barge into the house but casually entered almost unnoticed, exactly like the adversary does. Unbeknownst to those inside eating dinner, the intruders overcame the unarmed guard outside the mission home. So, there's an unarmed guard outside the mission home. Things are obviously somewhat precarious, There in Mozambique, however, not precarious enough to actually arm the guard that you have outside your mission home. The intruders overcame the unarmed guard outside the mission home, she said. They then watched Elder Nelson and the others through the windows of the mission home, waiting for the right moment to attack. So here is a new detail. Wendy Nelson says that these men, before apparently the first one walked in, they watched Elder Nelson and the others through the windows of the mission home, waiting for the right moment to attack. So either these guys were not doing a very good job of being surreptitious about watching them through the windows of the mission home, or Wendy Nelson's imagination is beginning to run away with her here. The adversary knows your whereabouts, Sister Nelson said. The robbers didn't barge in. They just sauntered right on in, exactly like the adversary. It struck me as well that we, therefore, as women, need to be hypervigilant about what's coming into our home on the internet, the computer, and the TV. Going on with the article... Sister Nelson said she felt comforted just prior to the incident, comfort that helped her keep calm during the difficult experience. Here's her quote. Just before that man walked in, an intense, beautiful peace came upon me, she said. If you're ever in a situation where you doubt God, just call me. I will tell you, I have felt that peace. So even before the robbery has commenced, Sister Nelson feels an incredible sense of peace come over her. Apparently, then, God is aware beforehand that this robbery is going to take place, but instead of intervening directly to keep it from happening, he simply gives Wendy Nelson a feeling of peace. I imagine this is cold comfort to Cindy, the mission president's wife, who suffered a broken arm during the event. Sister Nelson said righteous women everywhere need to be vigilant and bold, just as Cindy Packard was on that evening in Mozambique when she responded quickly and took action and got a broken arm. I added that last part. Sister Nelson said she, Cindy, she labeled the problem and the second thing she did was to free herself and get out. We need to be like her and get over it, being slow to take action. We need to get over being slow to take action. Our spiritual strength of the past won't be enough in the future. We need to increase the intensity of our prayers and of our scripture study so you can see how she's taking this story and then drawing lessons from it which she hopes will be a benefit to her audience at the Take Time for Women Conference. So, in this story, Sister Nelson seems to have added to the narrative not only this overwhelming sense of peace she felt immediately before the robbery even commenced, but also the allegation that the one intention of these four robbers was to hurt her husband, Elder Nelson, and to kidnap her. But the elaboration and the miracle-making continues that was november of 2009 by 2015 there is an lds living article yes we go back again to lds living magazine an lds living article from 2015 on a book written by drumroll please russell m nelson so in 2015 president russell m nelson has written a book titled accomplishing the impossible what god does what you can do and once again lds living magazine has excerpted a passage from this book. This article is titled, When Angels Saved President Russell M. Nelson's Life. What we know about heavenly messengers. Yes, the incident at Mozambique is now going to become an example of angels saving President Russell M. Nelson's life through the miracle-making prowess of Russell M. Nelson. Here's what the introduction to this article says at LDS Living Magazine. In his book, Accomplishing the Impossible, What God Does, What We Can Do, President Russell M. Nelson shares a powerful personal experience with angels. No, not just with robbers, but with angels, as well as many fascinating examples from the scriptures and church history. Enjoy the excerpt below and learn more about these heavenly beings. Well, here is a rather lengthy chapter talking mostly in general about angels from the scriptures. We're going to skip that part to get to the good stuff. And here's where we get to it. Quoting from this excerpt from the book by Russell and Nelson, The Lord made a promise to those faithfully engaged in his service. He said, I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Now he gets to his new and improved version of the incident at Mozambique. Quote, My wife Wendy and I are the beneficiaries of that promise on one occasion we were attacked by armed men with malicious intent they announced their purpose to kidnap her and to kill me so now the four robbers are not there to rob people they are there to kidnap wendy watson and to kill russell m nelson why it is that that is their intent is not at all made clear And why it is that they should be able to recognize Russell M. Nelson as somebody that they have this particular animus toward, and his wife as someone that they wish to kidnap, is also not made clear because there were other people present in the room. And not only was that their intent, they announced it upon entering their room. One other thing that is not made clear is how Russell M. Nelson could understand their announcement of their intent to kill him and to kidnap Wendy unless they were saying it in English or perhaps Mandarin Chinese. Or perhaps these four robbers were among the more educated citizens of Mozambique, who knew how to speak not only the native Portuguese, but had also learned a bit of English, specifically for occasions such as this. Now, I thought that perhaps, if they made this announcement in Portuguese, it would have been Cindy, the wife of the mission president, who understood it and translated it later, since she was the only one, according to Wendy Nelson, who was able to speak the language. But no, according to Wendy Nelson, Cindy, the mission president's wife, had already left the building as soon as she saw the first man enter into the room and stand nonchalantly by the door. That was when the mission president's wife recognized this was a robbery and ran out into the street to summon help in Portuguese. So, Cindy, the mission president's wife, would not have been present when the others came in and made their announcement that they were going to kill President Nelson and kidnap Wendy Nelson. So, it is not clear at all as to who it was who was present who could have understood that announcement, had any such announcement, in fact, been made at all. The more we compare the different accounts of this event from Wendy Nelson from 2009, November, and from Russell Nelson from his 2015 book, the more confused the situation becomes. Russell and Nelson goes on with his account. After they maliciously molested us in those evil objectives, they became totally foiled. Now, it is not clear what he means when he says they maliciously molested us in those evil objectives. The evil objectives are obviously to kidnap her and kill him, but they did not succeed in either because, as he says, they became totally foiled. Now, listen to this. A gun to my head failed to fire. So now, all of a sudden, these armed robbers have put a gun to President Nelson's head and pulled the trigger and it did not go boom. It went click. That's miraculous, but what about Wendy? He goes on, and my wife was suddenly released from their hideous grasp. He doesn't say how it was that she was released, but apparently they came in, they announced their intention to kidnap her, they grabbed her, and then they suddenly released her. This recounting of the story by President Nelson is strong on miracle and short on detail. Then they disappeared as quickly as they had appeared which is what you would expect robbers to do once they had gotten the stuff they came in to rob. We were mercifully rescued from potential disaster. We know we were protected by angels round about us. So you see, here's where the angels come in. The angels come in because now that this story has been elaborated to the point where the robbers come in, they announce their intention to kill President Nelson. They put a gun to his head. It fails to fire. Now, angels are there protecting them. Why? Because they are the recipients of this promise that angels will go before the faithful servants of the Lord to protect them. And indeed, his wife Wendy is one of those faithful servants who also was protected by angels because after the robbers had announced that they were going to kidnap her, they were somehow, inexplicably, totally foiled because Wendy was suddenly released from their hideous grasp. Yes, Elder Nelson concludes, the Lord's precious promise had been invoked in our behalf. Now wait another second. Where did the gun come from? I thought the original newspaper report about this robbery said that robberies in Mozambique usually occur with people carrying machetes, not firearms. Let me look at that article again. Yes, that's right. Austin Hill, the former missionary in Mozambique says when you hear of something happening in the neighborhood as you're there, it's usually with a machete. So it turns out that not only are the Nelsons attacked by well-educated robbers who can speak English, they have also managed to upgrade their machetes to firearms. This really is a miracle, isn't it? Now, is it possible that all of these details really did happen and they simply were not reported at the time in May of 2009? And it took until 2015 when President Nelson wrote his own book to actually give the full, accurate, and complete recounting. Yes, it's possible. But when you compare this example of the incident at Mozambique with the other examples that I have given, it appears that Russell M. Nelson has a track record of taking ordinary events and then overlaying them with a patina of miracles in order to not only make them faith-promoting for the members, but also to give the secondary and salubrious effect of demonstrating how special and how great Russell M. Nelson is. It's what one speaker in General Conference recently called a humble brag. So if there were only one example of this type of behavior by President Nelson, I wouldn't make a big thing out of it. If there were only two examples, I might start to mention it, but with three examples like this in the historical record, it is beginning to look more and more as if anything President Nelson says that involves a story of a miraculous nature should be taken with a grain of salt. And the reason I think this becomes more significant is because Elder Nelson is no longer simply an apostle. He is currently the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and as such, is revered and sustained by true believing members of the LDS Church as a prophet of the Living God. So having reviewed all of this evidence, the question is not so much whether he should be sustained as a prophet of God, the question is whether you would buy a used car from this man. Now, I think we all know why it is that President Nelson wants to add miracle stories to the otherwise mundane events of his life. The most charitable explanation is that he wants to increase the faith of the members of the church. But what happens to that faith when members of the church feel the Spirit when they hear these miracle stories from President Nelson only to find out later that these are fabrications on his part and that they never happened? I think we all know what the road to hell is paved with. And perhaps it would be a good thing for President Nelson to keep that in mind. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.